All right, where are all the, uh, the kids at this morning? Can you guys hold up your hands for me? All right, even though this is a second Sunday of the month and we normally do Kids Connect, because we're meeting here today, we're going to push Kids Connect back till next week, and then we'll do Kids Connect two weeks in a row. So you have to... Uh, or you get to do two weeks in a row next week, but you get two weeks of kids' sermon this week. So, I have a question for all of you. I want to know, how old is your oldest grandparent? You might have to ask your parents if you don't know. You don't know Solomon? Who's got an answer for me? Parents, if you don't know your parents' age. What do you say, Dinah? Super old. What's up, Zeke? 70. 72. Anybody older than 72? 90 what? 92. 80-something. Anybody older than 92? Huh? All right, 92. That's pretty old. Uh, So now I have another question for you. Whether your grandma or grandpa is 92 or whether they're 80-something or 70-something or younger, What would you say if I came up to you and I said, guess what? Your grandma is going to have a baby. How many of you would believe me? Solomon, you would believe me. Anybody else, would you believe me? Why not? Do you think that I make stuff up? What? You would believe me? Thanks, Silas. You grow a baby before you're old. What else? Anybody else have an answer? Why wouldn't you believe me? You guys like Zeke's answer? That old people don't have babies? What do you think, Johnny? Too old to have a baby. I, I kind of agree. But there's a story that we're going to read about today in the Bible of Abraham and Sarah. How many people know who Abraham and Sarah are? Who's Abraham? He's the father of what? Of Isaac. Does anybody know how old Abraham was when he had Isaac? Do you think it was older or younger than 92? Older. Does that sound right or does that sound crazy? That sounds crazy. How old was he? In his 900s? A little younger than that. 100. What about Sarah? Does anybody know how old Sarah was? She was close. She was younger than Abraham. 90. So Sarah was 90, Abraham was 100, and they had a baby. Doesn't that sound unbelievable? Yeah, Sarah thought so too. Do you know what Sarah did when God told her she was going to have a baby? She laughed. She said, that's crazy. I'm super old. Super old people don't have babies. My husband is super old. Super old husbands don't have wives who have babies. Uh, And yet, what we see in the Bible is exactly what we've heard, that that they have a son and his name's Isaac. And what we're going to find out in Hebrews today is that even though God's promise to them that a 90-year-old and a 100-year-old person would have a child together, they had faith that God keeps his promises. They believed that God was faithful 
even though it sounded crazy that those people that old, grandparents aged people, would have a baby and bring him forth into the world, and that's exactly what happened. Does anybody know uh, who one of Isaac's deep, deep, deep descendants is? So like his great, 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 great grandson is. I'll give you a hint. He's somebody that's very, 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 very important. Jesus, that is exactly right. All because God gave that promise, that unbelievable, crazy promise to those super, super old people. They had faith, they trusted God, and through them, God brought forth Isaac into the world. And through Isaac, a long, 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 long time after, he brought Jesus into the world. And through Jesus, we have salvation. And so, we should believe that God can do amazing, incredible things, even though to our ears, sometimes they sound crazy and unbelievable. So I would encourage you to go home and talk to your parents about other unbelievable things that God can do, especially the most unbelievable thing, and that is saving us from our sin in Christ. Um, Now, if you would, open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to read verses 8 through 22 this morning of Hebrews chapter 11. Again, that's Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to read verses 8 through 22. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that we know that every good and every perfect gift comes down to us from you. 
And in spite of all the grace you give us, you also give us the gracious gift of your word. And in it, we get to read about and learn about and hear about how you consistently keep your promises to your people. How you consistently demonstrate your faithfulness to them and to us. And I pray today that as we look at Hebrews 11 together, that, that our faith would be increased by seeing how you kept your promises to Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. God, I pray that you would grow us in our faith, increase our trust in you, that you will keep your promises to us, even as you have already kept so many of them in Christ for us. I pray now that you would be with us as we look at your word together this morning. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. So, as you can tell by what we just read, we're continuing our journey through Hebrews chapter 11. A couple weeks ago, we kind of talked about the beginning of Hebrews 11 and how it outlines what faith is and what it means to have faith. And I threw out this definition, having faith means trusting what God says has happened, trusting what he says will happen, and trusting what he says about who he is and who you are. So faith looks back at what God says has happened in the past, and it says, I believe that that's true. It looks forward to the future about what God says will happen, and it says, I believe that that's true. And it looks about at the stuff in Scripture about the nature of God and what he's done for us, and it says, I believe that that's true. And faith is, is fully orbed in that way. It embraces all of those things, and they work together to make up this, this personal trust that we have in who God is and what he's done for us. And in Hebrews uh, 11 today, we're going to get to see more examples of faith working that way. Uh, in Abraham's life specifically, just because the author gives us a whole lot more of, of Abraham's life, we get to see each of those three elements working out in him. But, but by and large, the biggest thing that we're going to see today is that future-oriented nature of faith. We're going to get to see Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph look forward to the future and say, I trust that God is going to keep his promises, and because of that, they're going to make actions in the present in faith that God is going to keep keeping his promises to them. And we see this beginning in verse 8. The author says, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as in inheritance. What he's talking about here is what happens in Genesis chapter 12. And we're going to throw these verses up on the screen. If you want, you can flip over there or you can just follow along there. But this is what he says. The author of Genesis tells us, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is what God says to Abraham. He comes to him and he says, leave your land and go to the land that I'm going to show you. And then he also gives him a promise. He says, this is, this is what I'm going to give you when you do that. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you lots of people. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you many descendants. And he says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. I'm going to make you a blessing to everyone. And we haven't been going through Genesis, right? We've been going through the book of Hebrews. 
But if we had been going through the book of Genesis, in, Hebrew, in Genesis 1 through 11, we would see that this promise that God gives to Abraham isn't this isolated new thing. Uh, this promise to Abraham is both personal in that he's giving specific promises to him, but it's also cosmic in that it affects everything. It affects all of God's creation. The, reason where, the place where we see that is that God's promise to Abraham directly relates to the curse that he pours out when Adam and Eve sin in the garden. When Adam and Eve sin in the garden, he kicks them out of the garden. Right? They have to leave the place where God is. They have to leave their land that they had where they lived in God's presence. They, they move from that place and go out into the wilderness outside of God's presence. Now God comes to Abraham and he says, hey, come to this land that I'm going to show you. I'm going to give you a land so that you're not just out there on your own. Uh, God also told Adam and Eve that with difficulty they would bring forth children into the world. Right? It would be hard for them to have many, many, many descendants. But God comes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Many, many, many people are going to come from you. God also told Adam and Eve that there was going to be this ongoing conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. What he's talking about there is that there's going to be a conflict between uh, the people of God, the seed of the woman, and the enemies of the people of God, the seed of the serpent. God comes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. I'm going to have your back in this cosmic conflict that's going on between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. So when God comes to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and he says, come out from your land, go to the land that I'm going to show you. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. He's picking up Genesis 3 as Adam and Eve are leaving the garden. He's saying, in you, in your descendants, I'm going to overturn that curse. And he does it. God keeps his promise to Abraham. He overturns those curse through one of Abraham's descendants. Of course, we know from the New Testament that that's in Christ. And so God comes to Abraham. He gives him these great and precious promises. Uh, and Abraham responds to God's call. He goes out from his land. He goes to the land that God shows him. And Hebrews tells us, that Abraham, by faith, obeyed. So Abraham hears God's promise. He hears God's call to go out from his land, and he does it. And it's important to know that Hebrews tells us that Abraham obeyed by faith because in Genesis, it's not till Genesis 15, 6 that the author of Genesis tells us that Abraham had faith. But just like last week we saw in the stories of Abel and Enoch and Noah, the author of Hebrews looks back at the Old Testament saints and he sees faith in their obedience. He understands that any obedience that pleases God flows out of our faith. So when Abraham in Genesis 12 leaves his land and goes to the land that God shows him, the author of Hebrews looks at that and he says, Abraham believed God. He had faith in God's promise, and that's why he left and went to this different land that God was showing him. So Abraham, by faith, obeys. God promised to give him a land. He promised to give him descendants. He promised to give him blessings. And Abraham went where God told him. But, the author of Hebrews tells us, by faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, 
living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. So God made this great promise to Abraham. He said, I'm going to give you this land. Go and see it. And Abraham goes and sees it. And he gets there and God says, not yet. Live in tents. Live as a foreigner. Live as a stranger in the land that I'm promising to give you. And Abraham does that. He keeps his faith that God is going to keep his promise, even though it seems like he's there and God should deliver on that promise right then, but he keeps trusting, and the author of Hebrews tells us why. Verse 10 says, For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So Abraham is in the promised land, the land that God promised to give him, the land that he left his home for, God still hasn't given him the land, and yet he keeps trusting that God is going to keep his promise to him because he's looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. What the author of Hebrews is telling us here is that Abraham was able to keep trusting, to keep having faith, even though God hadn't kept his promise yet because he was focused on a better promise. He was focused on a better land. He was focused on the city whose designer and builder was God, and he's going to bring this back up later in our passage. Abraham's eyes are fixed on the best promise that God has made to him, the one of himself, and we'll see that later in the chapter. For now, the author turns his focus to Sarah. He says, by faith, Sarah received power to conceive even when she was past the age, right? She's 90. She's well past the childbearing age, and yet the author of Hebrews tells us that she had faith, and that's how she conceived. That's how she brought forth Isaac into the world is by faith. But, as we've already heard, that wasn't her initial response. Let me read to you what she, how she responded initially. This is from Genesis 18, verses 9 through 15. They said to him, this is some Uh, visitors speaking to Abraham, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him, which I really like that detail, the tent door, as if tents are soundproof somehow, and because she's at the door, she can hear. She's at the tent door. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, Uh, almost 100, almost 90, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah because she's almost 90. So she laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Meaning, shall she receive what it is that she's been desiring for her almost her entire life, right? She was barren. Barren women during this time period were seen as people that didn't have God's blessing. Children were a blessing from the Lord, and if you couldn't have children, then it was people thought, well, they must have done something wrong. They must be cursed by God for some reason. And so she would have wanted children more than perhaps anything, and yet she didn't have any. And so she's saying, shall I have pleasure now that I'm this old? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a son now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. So he reiterates the promise to Abraham. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. For Sarah, this is clearly not a faith-filled response. She laughs at the promise that God makes to Abraham. That's not her, by faith, 
receiving power to conceive. But the author of Hebrews clues us into what's going on here. He says, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since, because this is where her faith came from, she considered him faithful who had promised. So just like we recognized earlier, the nature of the promise that God makes to Abraham and Sarah is insane. It's unbelievable. It's crazy. 90-year-old, 100-year-old people don't have babies. That promise is unbelievable. And that's why Sarah laughs. But the more she thinks about it, the more she meditates on the promise that God made to them, she realizes that even though the promise is unbelievable, the one who made the promise isn't. The one who made the promise is faithful. And that's where her faith comes from. That's what she puts faith in, that God is a God who keeps his promises, even the ones that sound ridiculous to us. By faith, she received power to conceive Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Through Sarah's faith, through Abraham's faith, he keeps his promise and brings forth the promised children to Abraham into the world. And through their descendants comes Christ. And yet, despite their faith, despite their belief that God keeps his promises, verse 13 tells us, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Abraham and Sarah got Isaac. God delivered on that promise to them, but they didn't get to see their descendants as numerous as the grains of the seashore. They didn't get to see their descendants outnumber the stars in heaven. They just got kind of glimpses and hints at God keeping these big, huge promises he had made to them. And yet they kept trusting, even though they weren't in the land. He says, for people who speak thus, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. So if if the land they came from was the one they were seeking, they could have gone back. But, verse 16, as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. This is what enabled Abraham and Sarah to keep trusting, to keep having faith, even though God hadn't kept all his promises to them, because they knew, just like he said of Abraham in verse 10, there was a better promise for them, a better hope for them, and they were focused on that. I want to read some passages from Revelation to you. Uh, that talk about what it is that their hope is set on. And I want to encourage you to, to not do what we as people do so often when we hear Scripture, especially Scripture that we've heard before, and that is to just kind of tune it out. Um, this, these sections of, of Revelation 21 and 22, what these are is, are, are the vision of a fellow human being, right? Somebody like, like, like me or like you who God gave a glimpse into what things will be like. And he came back and wrote this down for us to be encouraged by, to give us something to set our eyes on, to set our hope on. And so don't just, you know, hear Revelation and, you know, I know new heavens, new earth, right? Throne, crystal river, tree of life, all this stuff. Don't, don't tune it out. Like, 
allow the Spirit of God to encourage you with his word because that's what it was written down to do. So listen with me. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding each fruit in its month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This brings us back to the beginning. This is where God keeps all his promises to us. He does away with this world that's been corrupted and broken by us and our sin, and he gives us a new and better one where sin never, ever happens. But even more than that, he gives us a place where he is. For Abraham and Sarah and their sons who were much, much closer to Genesis 3 than we are. They would have known the pain of being kicked out of God's presence in a way that that we don't. Because we don't have anyone in our family tree that's very close that lived with God. And so for them, God's promise to them wasn't just some distant, distant hope. It was what they fixed their eyes on. They believed that God was going to keep his promises to them, that he was going to bring them back into their presence, into his presence. And so I think the reason why the author of Hebrews can say what he says about them and their faith is because they weren't just hoping in land or descendants or even blessing. Their hope 
was that God would be with them again. And so as God, you know, delays some of his promise to them, at least from their perspective, that didn't matter to them. They were able to live in the land that he promised to them as foreigners and aliens because they knew that a better land was coming for them. A land in which they would dwell with God and not just with one another. The, the good ending of God's story is one that we will all get to participate in. And as we seek to live as his people in a broken and dying world, especially right now where it seems like everything is in chaos. That hope, that that world that John has described for us, that it's actually going to come, that God is actually going to keep those promises to us, is our only hope to live the way he's called us to live now. And that should be before us and in our minds. It should be our hope, not something else. Right? I love how the author of Hebrews says that they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. I feel like in the last election cycle, that should have been the verse most quoted by us as Christians. Right? Who cares if America's made great again? It would be nice, you know, depending on what your definition of America being great is, But the reality is, is that the best place for us to be is in this heavenly country, not in this earthly one. He goes on to talk about Abraham's trust and the depth of his faith in verses 17 through 19. He says, By faith, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So here he's talking about the story of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22. And I think that when we hear this passage taught, or when we read it most often, like our, our thoughts are drawn to just kind of the, the personal, emotional nature of Abraham as father and Isaac as son. And so we think, you know, like what, what would it be like for us as a parent to be asked by God to give up one of our kids or, or, or something like that? Or, or if you don't have kids, what would it be like for me to give up this thing that I really love? Like if God tested me and said, will you, you, know, will you sacrifice this? And I don't want to take away from that because you know, this was certainly uh, an emotionally traumatic event for Abraham and for Isaac. But look at what the author of Hebrews focuses on. He says he offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises, the promises of land to his descendants, and descendants, and a blessing for himself and his family, he was in the process of offering up his only son, just in case we don't understand what he's talking about, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. The author of Hebrews is focusing on the promise. He's focusing on the reality that all God's promises are going to be passed on from Abraham to Isaac, and it's through Isaac that God is going to keep his promises to Abraham. And so when Abraham kind of raises the knife and is ready to kill his son, what he's doing is he's, he's about to do something that seems directly contradictory to God's promise to him. All of God's promises are going to come through that son. 
And if that son doesn't exist, how are his promises going to be kept? And yet, Abraham approaches this whole thing with faith. As they're going uh, to this place that God tells them to go, in, in Genesis 22, 5, he says to his servants, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. He says, we're going to go over there, we're going to worship, and then we are going to come back. I hope. I have faith. Again, later, uh, Isaac, as they're going up the hill, right, because Isaac isn't an idiot, he says, we've got fire and we've got wood, but we don't have a lamb for the burnt offering. And Abraham responds, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And again, you have to imagine that Abraham in his head is going crazy. I I hope, I I trust, I believe that he's going to do this. Hebrews Hebrews 11, 19 says, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So even at the end, even as he's ready to kill him, he's trusting that even if he does kill his son, that God is going to bring him back from the dead. Thankfully, Abraham and Isaac are both spared that. God provides a substitute. He provides a ram to die in Isaac's place. Abraham, the whole time, kept believing that God would do what he said he would do, even as he was asking him to do something that seemed to directly contradict the promise that he made to him. Abraham keeps trusting, keeps having faith, knowing that God is faithful. He's going to keep his promises because he already has. Isaac is the most tangible proof Abraham has that God keeps his promises. And Abraham's faith is strong enough that he's willing to even give that up. Obviously, Genesis 22 looks forward to the time when God sends his own son to die in our place as a substitute for us. His son who is born through the descendants of Isaac. God provides a substitute for Isaac so that he can bring his son into the world to be the substitute for us. The next three verses all focus on deathbed faith. He says, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on, Isaac, on Jacob and Esau. Even as Isaac is dying, he's saying, God is going to keep his promises to you. Verse 21, by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. He said on his deathbed, God is going to keep his promises to you. Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. Joseph, in faith, prophesies about the time when God's people are going to leave the land that they're enslaved in and go to the land that God had promised to them, and he says, take me with you. I'm not going to be there to see it, but it's going to happen. Take me too. All of these three are expressing trust that God is going to remain faithful and keep his promises even as they're dying. And I think that for us as Christians, we should be able to have that kind of faith at death because the reality is that death is when God delivers on all his promises. It doesn't seem like it. It doesn't feel like it for all of us who are left behind. But the reality is is that for 
Jacob and Joseph and Isaac, as they're passing away, as they're saying God is going to keep his promises to you, to the next generation, they're waking up inheriting all of God's promises. They get to be in that city whose designer and builder is God. They get to be in that better country that they've been longing for. Our faith gives us the answer to humanity's greatest fear. Because we know that God keeps his promises. Even the ones that seem unbelievable. Even the ones that seem to directly contradict his promises to us. And even when it seems like all chance that we have to have any promises kept for us at our death is over. God keeps his promises. Because his promises don't end when we die. That's when they begin. That's when we get to live in the place with him. All of these things that Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph are hoping in are just things that point to what really matters. Joseph saying, God's going to bring you out of Egypt. He's going to free you from slavery. He's going to take you to the land that's promised for you. The Exodus points to Christ as he brings us out of our slavery to sin and brings us into relationship with him. The promised land, the land that God's people are going to dwell in, and he's going to be there in one place looks forward to the better land that's coming where God is going to be with us in every place. And so as they're placing their faith in these promises, they're really placing their faith in the bigger promises that are yet to come. And that's what it's like for us too. We know so much more of God's revelation than they do because we get to look back on the cross. We get to look back on the reality that the Messiah has come, that this descendant who's going to overturn the curse of the fall has come into the world and he's done it. Because of that, our faith should be even stronger than theirs. Because for them, right, that kind of threefold nature of faith, they're almost totally looking to the future saying, God's going to keep promises. He's, He's done a little bit in the past, in my life, the creation. But most of it is all forward. It's all yet to come. Not much of it is already. But for us, because we live on this side of the cross, God has already done so much for us. And because of that, we should have so much faith and so much trust and so much confidence that all of the not yet that's promised is going to happen. If we don't, It's not a deficiency in his promises. It's not a deficiency in the work that's already been done. It's a deficiency in our faith. In Romans, Paul says, how can he who did not spare his own son not also with him give us all things? Freely give us all things. Paul is is looking back on the cross as God's greatest and most gracious gift to us and saying, if he has done that, all this other stuff is nothing for him. And so as you're going through life in this broken world, as you're 
seeing brokenness all over the news and social media and relationships with other people, I would encourage you to be someone who brings faith into those conversations. Be someone who brings God's promises and how we cling to them in the midst of all this uncertainty into those conversations. Don't be someone who just brings more brokenness into the conversation because that's not going to help anyone. That's not the answer God has given us. He's given us faith to trust in him that he's going to keep keeping his promises. If he can cause a 90-year-old woman to have a baby, he can enable me and you to dialogue well on social media. Right? He can enable us to stir one another up toward love and good deeds. He can enable us to parent our kids well, to grow in grace, to speak truth to one another, to share the gospel with someone that we encounter in the grocery store or you know, at our work. If God can deliver on these amazingly great and unbelievable promises, he can certainly do small things in the day-to-day details of our life. So I would encourage you to trust him in that. Today, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it's going to be, I don't know, logistically interesting because both of the tables are right there. So, yeah, form a line and figure it out. But as you do the important thing of not just preparing to walk to the table, but to prepare your heart to go to the table, I would encourage you to be thinking about the truth that God has kept so many of his promises for you already in Christ. That in Christ, all the promises of God find their yes. And even though some of them are still not yet for us, we don't need to doubt or fear or worry or be anxious that he's going to keep those promises for us. Because the fact that he sent his son into the world assures that he will. So spend time preparing your heart to do that. Ask God to show you by his spirit the ways in which you're not trusting him. And then do it. Right? He has kept so many of his promises. We don't have any reason not to trust him. Let's pray. God, we thank you that it is impossible for you to change. It is impossible for you to lie. Because of that, we know that you do indeed keep your promises. You are nothing but faithful. And that you remain faithful even when we are faithless. And I pray today that as we've seen great, great displays of faith in your people, even in the midst of laughing at the unbelievable nature of some of your promises, that we would trust that you can produce that kind of faith in us too. Not so that we can be impressed with ourselves and our faith, but so that we can be impressed with you and your gracious, promise-keeping nature. 
God, I pray that you would help us to fix our eyes on your promises. And that we would realize that the best is yet to come. Because the ultimate gift that you're going to give us is yourself. Help us to long for that and hope and trust in that more than anything else. Be with us now as we again remind ourselves Jesus of your sacrifice on our behalf.